Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 12. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 2. And the word of the Lord reads, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. The late C.S. Lewis once wrote, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. And so finally, here we are. After a year and 10 months, we finally arrive at the major transition point in the letter to the Romans that we have been waiting for. We now transition from the theology of Paul to now Paul's application uh, of the gospel. Uh, actually, it's a transformation from information to action. You see, Paul, when he writes his letters, usually does so in two major sections. The first section is usually theology. What is it that we need to know? And then the second is, what do we need to do? You see, the reason why Paul writes his letters to the churches and to pastors isn't for just general correspondence. He writes them in order to explain some important theological truth or to correct some theological error because, because Paul writes for a specific purpose. And he usually spends the first half of the letter explaining theologically what his readers need to know. And that's exactly what we saw in Romans to this point. In chapters 1 through 11, Paul has been explaining in great detail the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the part of the letter that is the, the greatest theological exposition of the gospel in all of Scripture. In chapters 1 through 4, he explains what the gospel is, the, the bad news of mankind's sin and the wrath of God, and the good news about what God has done in Christ Jesus to save sinners. Then in chapter 5, Paul explains the glorious blessings that the, that the gospel gives to those who believe. And then he explains how the gospel works how sin and death came through Adam, and how life and salvation come through Christ. And then in chapters 6 and 7, Paul unpacks for us the, um, the, the glorious freedom that we have in Christ because of the gospel. And then in chapter 8, he leads us to the summit of our gospel hope and explains how those who put their faith in Christ are completely safe in the hands of God. And then in chapters 9 through 11, Paul defends the gospel against some really big, big objections. And he concludes by, by telling us that salvation is the work of, of God's sovereign hand, and he is able to take the worst of our failures and use them to bring about ultimate victory. And then that's where we wrapped up the theological part of Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, in the second section of Paul's letter, as we know, is usually where the application is. In other words, you know, what are we supposed to do now? 
in light of the theology? How are we supposed to live now that we understand the truth? Well, that's exactly what we're going to see beginning in chapter 12 all the way to the end of this letter. Paul's going to explain how we ought to live in light of the truth of the gospel. And so in the coming chapters, he's going to explain how the gospel shapes how we're to live as, as a community of believers. He's going to talk about how, how the gospel should shape our relationships with other people and, and how it, it should shape our relationships with the rest of the world. Paul's going to explain how the gospel shapes how we treat other people, and he's going to explain how the gospel should shape the example that we set and how we live uh, before the rest of the world so they see Christ in us. And then he's going to exhort us to walk in freedom, but not allow us to have that freedom be a stumbling block for other people. These are just some of the things that Paul is going to explain in the coming chapters in how we should live given the truth of the gospel. Now that we understand the theology of the gospel, right? now that we know this, what do we do and how should it work its way in our lives? And again, that's going to be what we're going to approach in these chapters, beginning in verse 3 of chapter 12. But before we get there, what we have before us is two verses that bear special attention. Because what Paul explains here in these two little verses is the linchpin that really holds it all together. These two verses are really the pivot point that makes the entire letter to the, to the Romans work. You see, before we can apply the truth of the gospel in how we live before the rest of the world, Paul commands us to do something in our relationship with God. And this command brings all of the pieces together. It brings together the fact that we're saved by grace through faith and not of works. But in light of that truth, we are to live and walk in holiness and in obedience to God's will and His command. These two verses are the anchor that help us to rest assured in our salvation, but also to live the life that God is calling all Christians everywhere to live. And so, turn with me again to Romans chapter 12, and I just want to reread this text one more time, and then we'll take some time this morning to unpack them. Paul writes again, and I want you just, just to hear the words. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In these two verses, Paul gives us the foundation of the Christian life in light of the gospel truth. In fact, in verse 1, he's going to tell us what it is we need to do. And in verse 2, he's going to tell us how we need to do it. So let's start with verse 1. And the first thing we need to notice is that Paul, when he addresses the Romans, he uses the word brothers. And this is important because this lets us know that Paul is addressing believers here. Paul is addressing those who are already in Christ. And you might think, well, Sherman, that goes without saying. Right? 
And that's true, but we need what we need to understand is everything that Paul says after this point, I want you to hear me on this. Everything that Paul says after this point is irrelevant for those who are not in the faith. Everything that he says after this is irrelevant for non-believers. And the reason why I mention that is because everything that comes after this is the easy part of the Christian faith to talk about. It's easy to tell people, you just need to walk in love. It's easy to say the words, you need to pursue unity. It's easy to tell people, including non-believers, you just need to be a good citizen. It's easy to talk about how we ought to live. The application part of our faith is the easy part for us to actually communicate. And in fact, many people who want to reach the world for Christ will lead with the easy stuff. They will talk about our need to just be better people. We just need to be good to each other. They will talk about how we need to treat each other better, which which sounds really good and, and spiritual. Why? Because we live in a broken world. And so it's easy to see that we need to be better. And some will even say that's the reason why Christ came into the world, that Jesus came to be an example so that we are nicer to each other, we're better to each other, that we're good to each other. Jesus came to make us better. But that can't be further from the truth. Jesus didn't come to make us better people. He came to make us new people. As C.S. Lewis again puts it, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce a better man of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. The application in Romans, right? this how we live in light of the gospel, is the, is the outworking, the natural byproduct of our faith in Christ. It's, it's not the central focus of our faith. It's not the center point of our faith. In fact, it's not even the reason for our faith. And it's certainly not the root of our faith. It is to be the fruit of our faith. You see, the reason why everything from chapter 12 through 16 is not for unbelievers is because everything Paul describes here is meaningless without faith in Christ. Without being transformed by the power of the gospel, what Paul says about how we're to live is really a waste of time. I mean, we might end up treating each other a little bit better before we all go, but in the end, it's a waste of time if we're not reconciled to God and not helping others to be reconciled to Him. Not to mention, we can't even really live this way anyway. We can't live the way Paul describes in the remaining chapters without being transformed. I mean, we might externally for a little while, but you can't keep that lifestyle up. You understand, you can't live the way Paul describes in the remaining chapters as as an improved version of the old you. You must be new. You must be born again. You must be empowered by the Holy Spirit inside of you to persevere in that life. That's why this is for believers. Unbelievers don't need to be told how to live in light of the gospel. They need to hear the gospel. They need to be confronted with the truth about their sin. They need to recognize that they are under God's wrath, and there is no hope for them of saving themselves in anything that they do by themselves. They need to hear about 
what God has done for them in Christ Jesus because of his overwhelming love for them. And they need to be called to repent and believe and put their faith and their hope and trust in Jesus Christ. It's only then will the rest of this letter even be relevant to them. And so Paul is manifestly addressing believers here, which means us. The next thing I want you to notice is Paul says, I appeal to you. And unfortunately, so many times in the English language, it's just the meaning doesn't really fully convey the, the full force. Some translations will, will, will put this as I exhort you or I urge you. But the emphasis of this verb is a passionate appeal. In fact, I think it would be better to say if Paul would say, I beg you. Paul, in essence, is saying, I beg you, or I strongly, passionately urge you to do something. We need to understand that this, this is a forceful statement, that Paul is not just passing on a recommendation. He's not saying, hey, you know, if you get time, you might want to do this, or hey, you know what, it'd really be good for you if you live this way. Right? This is not a suggestion from Paul. The force of the Greek word actually means I am actually coming alongside of you and I'm pushing you along and urging you to do something. Paul is calling for a response. He's calling for action here. We've moved from theology, now it's time to do something. Not just being hearers of the word, but being doers of the word. The next thing we notice is, is the word therefore. It's an important conjunction. By the way, you know, as a, as a brand new English teacher, you know, I understand a little bit about grammar, but I'm going to tell you the grammar is even more important in Greek because the word therefore is such, such an important part of, of, the, of the language. As we say over and over again, the word is a conjunction that's connecting ideas together. You can't separate them. And we should always ask, when we see the word therefore, what's the word therefore? Therefore. And what we know is this word is connecting what Paul has already said to what he's about to say. And what Paul is driving at is his appeal or urging for believers to do something is directly to related, directly related to what he has already said. And in other words, he's saying, in light of the gospel, in light of of what the gospel is and the blessings that the gospel has bestowed upon you and how the gospel works, I'm begging you, brothers, now do something. Well, what is this that Paul is passionately urging us to do? He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, there is a whole lot of theology and a whole lot to say in this one little phrase here. Let's first talk about what Paul means by bodies. He says, present or offer them. That's what it means to present. It means to make an offering. Present or offer as an offering to God, our bodies, as a living sacrifice. What does that mean? Well, the essence of what Paul means is not just our bodies, but what we do with our bodies. You see, this, is, this reference to our bodies is a reference to your whole self. Right? It's, it's about our hands and the things that we do with them, whether we 
harm or whether we help, whether we push or whether we hold. It's a reference to our feet and the places that our feet take us. Our places, our feet can take us to places where we need to be and they can take us in places where we shouldn't be. It's about our ears and how we use them to hear and listen. It's about our eyes and the things that we choose to, to, to allow ourselves to see. It's about our brains and how we think and, and, and all the things that we allow into this space that influence our lives. It's this, this word body is a reference to all of you, your body and what you do with it, right? In other words, what he's saying is your entire life. What, what Paul is saying is all that you are, your whole life, and all that you do in word, thought, and deed, take all of that and then offer it to God as a sacrifice. In other words, Live your life, every facet of your life, as an offering to the king. That's the point that Paul's making here. I mean, we can apply this a hundred different ways, but that's the overarching point that Paul's making. Live your life as an offering to God, not just part of your life, not just your Sunday life, not just your devotional life, your whole life. In light of the gospel, live your entire life as an offering to God. Your life as a parent, your life as a spouse, your life as a community member, your life as a musician, your life as an employee, your life as a student. Live all of your life for God. In your work life, your home life, your love life, your financial life, and even your private life, that part of your life that nobody else gets to see or know. By the way, just as a side note, I was just watching a video today talking about how AI technology has changed, that they now can scan people's brains and that they can actually see the images you're thinking about. <laughs> right? That, that, that people can have, like they were watching videos and they were told, so when you watch this video, describe in your mind what you're seeing. And AI was able to basically write out almost word for word that inner dialogue that the person was having. So even our thoughts aren't even going to be ours anymore, right? But that being said, we are to worship God even in our private life, that, that part of our life we thought was really private. In every part of your life, live your life as an offering to God in all of your relationships, in all of your activities, in all of your thoughts. Offer all of it to God. Paul is saying, in light of the fact that you have been saved by God's overwhelming grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in light of the fact that you have a hope that cannot be taken from you, in light of the fact that you have been adopted into God's family as one of his children, in light of all of that, offer your entire self as a sacrifice to God who saved you. And I want you to notice that we don't do this to be saved. We do this because we have already been saved. Because Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. 
Now, the mercies of God is probably better translated as the overwhelming mercy of God. There's a lot of ink spilled on, you know, what does it mean mercies? It doesn't mean individual things. But, but really, it's not about the number of God's mercies. It's about the magnitude of his mercy. God took you, a wretched sinner, a rebel, a rebel who hated him, somebody who loved him, their sin, a creature who denied his existence and suppressed the truth about him in unrighteousness. God took you and had mercy on you and didn't give you what you rightly deserve, but instead gave you what you didn't deserve. And then he took you and gave you a new heart and a new nature, sent his son into the world to live the life that you couldn't live but were required to live. And then he died on the cross to make atonement for your sins and then endured in his body the wrath that you rightly deserved. And if that weren't enough, he then offers you eternal life. And the way that you avail yourself of it is not by being religious or by working really hard to, to obey a list of rules. It's simply by receiving it by faith. And all of your sins are washed away and Christ's righteousness is counted to you as it's your own and you were adopted in God's family and now you are an heir to the kingdom and God puts his spirit inside of you. That is the overwhelming mercy Paul's referring to. And brothers and sisters, if that mercy, hearing that doesn't overwhelm us, then we just are not reminding ourselves of really what happened and how we got here. What Paul is saying is by that overwhelming mercy that God has already had on you and by the overwhelming truth of the gospel because God has been gracious to you, because God has been merciful to you, in light of that, I beg you, now that you're saved, live your life for God. You see, this offering of our lives is not a compulsion in order to earn favor with God. It's an offering made in gratitude because of what he's already done and because we already have favor with God. You understand that, right? That you already have favor with God. He, he had favor on you because he chose to by his grace. He didn't do anything for it. Under the old system, under the old covenant, it was, hey, you need to make a sacrifice so that God will be merciful to you. Now it is, God's been merciful to you so make your sacrifice. And notice that this sacrifice is a living sacrifice. It's not a dead one. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled on this as well, and this certainly has a lot of different ways to apply this, but I believe the simplest way to understand this is to realize that, that this living sacrifice is really just a call to a lifestyle. First of all, it's because there's no longer any need for blood to be shed. Because Christ's perfect atoning death satisfied God's justice and his wrath for sin. And he did it forever. It's the once and for all sacrifice for sin, as we are told in the word. So there's no longer any need for blood to be shed. And secondly, the sacrifice we offer isn't just a an event that we do or perform. It's not a ritual. It's a, it's a lifestyle to be lived out. You see, it's, living, it's a living sacrifice because it's a continual offering to God. It doesn't 
cease. It's the idea, again, of coming and living our entire life for him. It's about living for him in the way that we treat our neighbors, even when it's hard to. It's about the way we manage our budgets. Because if there's anything that we think is ours, (laughs) is our money, right? It's living out our devotion to God in in how we vote, in in the way that we love, and, and even at times have to discipline our children. Even every little tiny aspect of your life has to be ordered and oriented towards God for His glory. And and notice that Paul calls, what what he calls this lifestyle. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The life that we are called to live towards God is really a life of worship. Now, the problem that we have in the Western culture, and especially here in America, is that we have a tendency to have a flawed understanding of what worship is because we say worship and most people immediately think music and singing. I know that was me for many years. In fact, people will, will, you know, will think that worship is the music part of the church service is separate from the preaching and the fellowship. In fact, I even heard a person talk about a gathering their church had and they described it as a wonderful time of worship and prayer meaning it was singing and praying. And they even made a point to say that there was no preaching or discussion of the word, as if preaching of the word of God isn't worship, and that somehow that, that, that preaching the word and declaring the word of God is intrusive to intimate worship experiences with other believers. But church, let's be clear. Worship is not music. Now, music is certainly a form of worship, and a wonderful form it is. I praise God regularly for the fact that this is one of the ways He's declared for us to to express our love and devotion to Him. What a beautiful way, you know. If you've ever sang a song that that has the heart of Christ in it, those words just elevate your heart to heaven. You've experienced that intimacy with God. You know what a beautiful form of worship music is, but worship is not limited to singing songs. Worship is not part of the service. The entire service is worship. From the reading to the, of the scriptures, prayer is worship. Fellowship with one another is worship. Giving of tithes and offerings is worship. And the proclamation of the word of God is most certainly worship offered to the king. But here's the thing. Worship isn't limited to just church services on Sundays either. Worship is not an event. It is a lifestyle to be lived. You see, at the heart of worship, what makes worship worship is the devotion to God. In fact, the word worship actually means worth-ship because God is worthy. He's worthy of our time, our attention, our energy, and our devotion. It's about focusing on God. It's about giving Him the glory, which, by the way, is why we were created in the first place. Our catechism in question number two asks the question, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man, the answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. 
Worship is about glorifying God in every part of our life, not just on Sunday mornings, not just in our devotional time, but every moment of every day. Worship is about living in a way that honors and glorifies God in every part of our life. That's why Paul urges us to offer ourselves and all of our lives to God as a living sacrifice. In light of God's mercy, we ought to worship Him with our whole life. That's how we honor Him. That's how we that's the appropriate response in light of what he's done. But again, notice he says that this lifestyle, this worship, is to be holy and acceptable to God. Now, the word holy means to be set apart. It means to be different from the world. Now that we've been redeemed, now that we have a new nature with new hearts and new affections, our lives should reflect that. Our lives should stand in contrast to the, to the culture around us. How we raise our children should look different than the rest of the world. How we treat strangers ought to be different than the rest of the world. How we stand up against evil that the culture embraces should absolutely set us apart. We should be different and be seen as different from the world. We are in the world, but not of the world. And so our lifestyle of worship ought to be holy, but also acceptable to God. And this is important because this is something that many Christians either don't recognize or don't want to recognize. There is a way, there is a, a way of life, there is a way of worship that is acceptable to God. And by implication, there are, are ways of living and forms of worship that are not acceptable to Him. Sometimes people think that worship, they're worshiping God, but ultimately are mistaken because they don't worship God according to the way that he has revealed himself to be worshiped. Now understand, this is not a call to any kind of legalism, but because we have been saved by grace through faith, and it's not of works or obedience to the law, but Paul did make it clear that we, we are certainly set free from the law but we're also set free from the power of sin in our lives. Remember, he asked, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, what? By no means. Absolutely not. Perish the thought. May it never be. How can we, he says, how can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness, walk in the newness of life. The expectation is that those who were made new in Christ will begin to grow in holiness and obedience. And that's what we see here. Our lifestyles will be marked by growing in holiness and a growing in conformity to God's commands. We would seek to do the things that, that God finds acceptable and that we would worship in ways that he finds acceptable. And this is, and this is a tough part for some people to take, especially in the culture that we live in. 
And it's tough for some Christians who, who, who have a tendency to lean towards antinomianism. I know that I did for a period of time. But the Word of God is clear on this. Paul is calling all believers to live their lives dedicated to God for His glory, and they're to do so in a way that's holy and acceptable to God. And they're to live in a way, and they live that way, not as a means to be saved, but by the natural outworking of the fact that they have been redeemed. Paul calls us, since we've been shown this radical grace and mercy, He calls us to live a life that is committed in every way to God and His glory. So that's the what. Then comes the how. Paul says, in light of the gospel, the foundation of how we're to live. And in verse 2, he tells us how to live that way. Verse 2, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the way in which we live in light of the gospel, the life that we're called to live, begins with some sort of change within us. Something about our lives is to change. Because notice that Paul uses words that are related to change. He uses the word conformed and the word transformed. Both of these words imply Big change. But notice Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. Now the word conformed is the idea of taking something and and pressing it into a mold to change its shape. It's like pressing clay into a mold or or like 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 plastic. You know how they will heat it up and they'll use vacuum form to actually force it to hold a shape. It's a, it's changing and the outward appearance, right? And it's an outward change that's patterned after something else. And what Paul is saying is do not let your life, the outward expression of who you are as a person, to be shaped by the world and the culture at large. Don't let the world shape your life. Don't let the world determine how you behave and how you live. Right? And by the way, this is really relevant for us and timely for us today. I mean, these words were written nearly 2,000 years ago, but they speak to the heart of where we are right here in America, right here in Boron, California. Because if there's, if there's a temptation that, the, that Christians face and that the church in America faces right now is to allow ourselves to be shaped externally by the world around us. The reason why so many churches have adopted progressive and woke and even Marxist ideologies is because the culture is putting pressure on them to conform. The reason why so many churches have abandoned what what many Christians have historically believed regarding marriage and, and sexual ethics, right, and have become openly affirming of every form of alphabet sin is because, because the world is applying pressure on them to force them to conform to the pattern of this world. And believe me, it's, it's on all sides of the political spectrum. I have seen church worship services that were, that, that's, that were more America first rallies than worshiping of, of the King of Kings. I've seen, I've seen blasphemous billboards and memes comparing Donald Trump to Jesus Christ. Comparing the work that his the persecution he's facing to to what Jesus endured, comparing the work that he's doing in America to his work in redemption. Now I don't care who you vote for; I never have. 
But can we just agree that this kind of stuff is egregious? But many in America, in the American church, go along with this kind of stuff because so much of American Christianity is shaped by American politics on the right and the left. But just because the culture is pushing, putting pressure on us, we don't need to be conformed to that. But those are the overt things that we can see. But there's also the stuff that's harder to see. The culture is trying to force Christians to abandon the exclusivity of Christ by making them ashamed of evangelizing the lost. How dare you push your view on us? How intolerant of you? What do you mean Jesus is the only way? That's really narrow-minded. It's really bigoted. The culture is also trying to force Christians in the name of tolerance to abandon important doctrines like the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture. You mean to tell me you really believe that, that Bible? You really mean to tell me that you believe that there was only two people in the garden? You mean to tell me that there was a donkey that actually talked? Yes, I believe every bit of that. And even more subtly, the culture with the help of well-meaning Christians, is trying to force the church to be more like the world so that non-believers will be not offended by the gospel and they'll be attracted to the church. That's why so many worship services look like concerts and TED Talks rather than the gathering together of God's people in devotion to Christ. But even, even more individuals are being pressured to conform in their own way. I've heard these words, well, I can't come to church, pastor. My daughter plays travel ball, and this is how she's going to earn a scholarship. So we have to pick softball over, over church. Well, all the girls dress that way, and if I force my daughter to be more modest, she's going to be an outcast in front of her friends. Well, you know, Pastor, I do understand what you're saying about that forgiveness stuff, but if I lived that out at work, people would walk all over me. You just don't understand how tough it is. All around us, the world is seeking to shape us through our friendships and through our connections and through media and social media and the culture. And it is continually exerting an external force on us in order to try to shape us in its image. But Paul says, don't be conformed. And don't be shaped by the pattern of this world. Instead, be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And notice Paul uses a different word for change here. First, he said, be conformed. That's, that's an external change. Right? He uses the word that we translate as transform. That's a Greek word that, that really we get our word metamorphosis from. And it's the idea of not simply changing shape, but, but a change in substance, a change in nature. And, it's, and, and it points to a change that works from inside out now that we now we know that we've been justified and that we've been justified by faith in Christ and because of that we are a new creature and, and have a new nature then what is Paul talking about here then he's talking about the ongoing change in our lives that's brought about the Holy Spirit and our cooperation with the Holy Spirit in sanctification this is the ongoing process in our lives that begins when we are first saved and then will finally end when we go home to be with the Lord. Right? And this is where we're being transformed little by little, bit by bit, more and more into the image of Christ. 
Rather than being conformed to the pattern of the world, we are being transformed progressively more and more to be like Jesus. But the thing that we need to understand is this doesn't happen out of thin air. We don't just give our lives to Jesus and poof, we, you know, we've been transformed and we're like Jesus. I wish it was like that, by the way. How many of you would be like, agree with that, right? Yes. It would be so much easier. Lord, just make me like you and we don't have to do stupid stuff no more. It saved me a lot of pain and energy. This transformation comes over time, right? But the, and it comes by the power of the Holy Spirit and an important catalyst. Paul says this transformation happens through the renewal of our minds. Paul says we are to be transformed from the inside out by the renewal of our minds. Now, the word mind here refers to the God-given capacity of each person to think and reason. It's the mental capacity to ex exercise reflective thought. For the believer, the mind is the origin or is the organ of, the, of receiving God's thoughts through faith. Paul is saying in order for us to live the lives that honor God, we must be transformed from the inside. And this transformation comes by the renewal of our ability to think and to reflect and to understand differently. And this kind of renewal, a renewal achieved really only by God's power. So how are we to, how are our minds renewed by God's power, but still in a way that we actively participate? How do we, take part in this supernatural work that God's doing in us? Well, first, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, but also by the power of the only instrument, the only instrument God has given us to not only renew our minds, but to affect change in our lives and the world around us. And that is the Word of God. That's how we renew our minds. It is through the sword of the Lord. It is through the word of God. That is how we, how our lives are transformed from the inside out is by the power of the word of God, renewing our thinking and our reasoning and reflecting ability. It is the word of God that supernaturally, by the power of the Holy Spirit, changes how we think and see the world around us. And it transforms our ability to reason Remember, the reason why sinners refuse God is because all of their faculties are completely corrupted by sin, including their ability to think and reason. There's a reason why Paul says no one seeks for God. The Holy Spirit uses the power of the Word of God to open our minds and our hearts. By the way, that's why Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Not well-spoken preachers, right? Not passionate, not passionate expositions. The power of salvation is the gospel, the spoken gospel of Jesus Christ. The word of God is the instrument for renewing our ability to think correctly and to reason rightly, which, by the way, leads to acting rightly. Right thinking leads to right action. Right thinking leads to right living. And this renewal of our minds and this transformation is intimately connected to the Word of God. So then how do we then avail ourselves of this? By the ordinary means of grace. You see, in our culture, 
of, of hyper-spiritualism in our culture that just looking for some magical sign of the heavens. It's not about mystical emotional experiences that, that God uses to transform us. It's the renewal and the transformed life comes from, from, from the overflow of the ordinary means of grace, which includes things like reading the Word of God, meditating on the Word of God, studying it, sitting under the authoritative preaching of the Word of God, and singing it individually and corporately. By the way, these are all the things that we do in corporate worship. Renewing our minds is about getting the Word of God into us. It's about saturating our minds and our thoughts with the truth of God's Word. It's about reading and memorizing and knowing and living it. In fact, notice what Paul says are the effects of a renewed mind. He says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You want to know how to live the life that honors God? A life that is a living sacrifice that's wholly acceptable to God? The answer is don't allow yourself to be shaped externally by the influence of the world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your minds through the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we do it. That way, Paul says, you'll be able to determine and discern the will of God for your life. By the way, I've had people ask me all the time, what is God's will for my life? I wonder what God's will for my life is. Well, I don't know what car he wants you to buy, but I do know some things about what he wants you to do. He wants you to spend time with him in prayer. He wants you to spend time with him in his word. He wants you to spend time with him singing to him. He wants you to spend time in fellowship with other believers. He wants you to spend time together corporately gathered. He wants you to spend time under the word of God being preached. He wants you to spend time and energy serving and worshiping him. He wants you to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? But the way that you will be able to determine the will of God for your life, and what is good and acceptable and perfect is is to seek to live God by the mercy that he's had for you. You see, before Paul tells us specifically how we ought to live in relationship with the rest of the world, he gives us the foundation for living in relationship with God in light of the gospel. And that foundation is to live lives committed to glorifying and honoring God in every facet of our life. And the way that we accomplish that and the way that we are to, to know how to do that is by turning away from the world and its influence and wisdom and turning to God and his word and allowing him to renew our minds so that our thinking accords with his will. And by extension, our actions will accord with his holiness and will produce in us as a byproduct a natural obedience in our lives. And if we get that part right, if we seek to devote ourselves to that part, the rest of what Paul will say in Romans chapter 12 through 16 will make a lot more sense and even more will progressively be empowered by his spirit to live out that. And this, as I said, is the linchpin. You've been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's not something that you earned. It's not something you deserved. God brought you into his family by his grace and he held out an offer of salvation that you received by faith. 
and now you are a new creature in him. You've been adopted into his family and nothing in heaven and earth can separate you from his love. But now you have been transformed. The call is to walk in gratitude in light of God's mercy and live every part of your life for him. Not as the root of your salvation, but the fruit of it. And the way in which you do that is not to memorize a list of rules or to become super religious or try really hard to be a good person. The way in which you do this and live this out is by being transformed from the inside out by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God through the renewing of your mind. So then what do we do with this? Well, <laughs> as always, it's the application is simple. If you're not in Christ, repent and believe the gospel. That's where we always have to begin. If you're not in Christ, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone and the promises He would save you. Turn to Him, He says, and you will not be put to shame. And the promises for everyone, no matter who you are, no matter what you've been, where you've been, no matter what you've done, if you will turn to Christ and be saved, He will save you. Now, for those of us in Christ, obviously this is a call to rest in Him and the work that He's done in us. We need to rest secured in the fact that we belong to Him, that our hope is secure in Him. But as we rest now, we then avail ourselves of the means of grace He's given us to transform our lives. That is, time in the Word, time in prayer, time with, with, with each other, giving of our resources, giving of our time in service, sharing the hope of Christ with other people, which then leads to the last, which is the rescue. There are people all around us, and I'm grateful to God that, you know, for those of you who are musicianaries who are out in the world doing just that, that you're using the talent that God has given you and the unique gift that God has given you to go out and meet people who will, might not ever step inside the walls here on their own, and that you're building relationships so that you can speak the truth of the gospel into their lives. This is the mission that we're all called to, by the way. It doesn't matter who you are. We're all called to go to those that we love and those that we know and those that we're connected to and share with them the only hope the world has, and that is Jesus Christ. This is how we live that transformed life. And it's the foundation then on which everything else we'll do and how we treat our neighbors and how we live before the world. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.